This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Jonathan Isaac. So Jonathan Isaac is a professional basketball player in the NBA for the Orlando Magic. He was drafted sixth overall in the 2017 NBA draft. And a lot of people, he came on their radar on July the 31st of 2020. This is back during the NBA bubble. It's their first game back. And this is, you know, after the killing of George Floyd in police custody, after the killing of Breonna Taylor accidentally by police and the racial tensions in America were the highest they had been in a very, very long time. And so everybody's on the court. Everybody's wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, and when the national anthem plays, everybody takes a knee, except for Jonathan Isaac. He decided that he was going to stand there without the Black Lives Matter t-shirt on and just stand there quietly, praying to himself, you know, just being respectful to the national anthem. And that's where he got on a lot of people's radar, especially on the conservative side of things, because we weren't expecting that from an NBA player, right? And so it was a very, very important time for him. And there was a lot of stuff that happened before then, a lot of stuff that happened after that. He kind of got, you know, mixed up in this whole anti-vaxxer debate that was happening over the last, you know, six months to a year. But he decided to write about not only those times, but also his entire life in a new book that he has out this week with the Daily Wire. And it's called Why I Stand. And so he put this out with DW Publishing. It's going to get out there to a lot of different places. As of the recording of this podcast, it's number one in his category on Amazon. It's going to do incredibly, incredibly well. But the book itself, has so much depth to it because you're expecting it to, to almost be like a political memoir about this guy that decided to stand up for his country and that type of thing. And, and it is that to a degree, but to a large degree, he did that because of his dedication to Christ. And it's an important lesson for all of us, but the, the lessons don't just begin there or in there. There's a lot of things from his life. When we get into all that here in the interview, we get into the stuff about standing for the anthem and the anti-vax stuff and some other things. But we talk about the important reasons why he decided that he wanted to stand because it goes way, way deeper than just trying to make a political point. All right, guys. So it's going to be a great one for you today. But without further ado, let's get into it. Jonathan Isaac, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you, my man. I'm excited to be here. Dude, I had to go ahead and hit record because we were saying such cool stuff off air. And I'm like, okay, we got to get this in there because people are always like, oh, I had a better interview before I hit record. Well, that's your own fault. So I'm not going to make my own mistake here. So we're going to start very generically here because there's a lot to talk about when it comes to your life. And there's a lot of great things that I picked out of your book. And that's what I do want to talk about you first, talk about with you first is you have a book out this week called Why I Stand. And um, as of a few days ago, right? So this is being released on the Thursday of release week. It was already number one on the Amazon on charts in your category and it's going to continue to climb from there and I know you're not a guy that really focuses on rankings and all that and every time somebody wants to talk to you about you you point them to Christ but I'm going to force you to talk about yourself a little bit on this episode so okay. you publish this with the Daily Wire okay so it's one of their first few publishings that are under their new publishing wing so two-part first question why did you write a book you know when you're this young still in the middle of your NBA career that kind of thing and then why did you choose to publish with DW yeah. Why did I write a book? So when when I originally stood, everybody came out and said, Jonathan Isaac is the most courageous and bold person in the world. And then you have the other side of the aisle that's saying this guy is nuts. He's a right. coon. He's a terrible person. And I'm like, listen, I want people to be able to have to hear the story behind the stand. And to me, one, when I was really writing the story and going through it, I'm like, yo, this really gives the stand its backbone. And so what I wanted to do was was pretty much just share my testimony of why I believe that Jesus Christ is the answer for the world, because he's been the answer for me. 
And so I want this book to be, uh, you know, a, a beacon of light and hope and let people see in my life the transformation that Jesus brought me. And hopefully that in turns empowers them, encourages them to stand up for what they believe in, to find Christ in the first place and to and just <laughs> ride out and, and, and continue to stand. Um, why I did it with the Daily Wire. Um, well, first off, they, they were one of the ones that reached out to me. Uh, or, or that connected with 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 my uh, book um, agent, and so we did a you know we did several interviews with different publishers, and you know some weren't so kind to what I had to say or you know where I was coming from with the book, but um, the Daily Wire loved it, and you know I uh, Ben Shapiro is a Jew, you know, I don't agree with everything, you know we we don't agree you know one hundred percent on everything, but we agree on, on some great things, and so I was excited the fact that he was even interested in, in publishing the book, and we we went for it. Yeah, that, that's an awesome way of going about it because that's what people talk about when they talk about the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, or Prager You and Dennis Prager. It's like these people have the same worldview in terms of the Judeo-Christian ethic that we all live under. And that's what's most important, especially when you get into what you're talking about. But I think it's awesome the way that you describe it because I didn't know that you existed because I, I, you know, I'm an Oklahoma City Thunder fan, right? But I didn't watch every single game and every single player and look at all the rosters and play fantasy. So that was the first time you popped up on my radar whenever you stood for the national anthem. And we'll get way, way, way more into that here later on the interview, guys. Don't worry. But like the cool thing about it is all of us, we think history started with when we were born. Right. But we don't even understand why you took that stand. If we don't go literally all the way back to Hunts Point, you know, in the South Bronx where you grew up. And so let, let's just kind of start there. So you grew up in New York City. So tell us what it was like growing up for a young Jonathan Isaac. You know, gr growing up in New York wasn't bad. It, it wasn't until I moved from New York to Naples, Florida, that my kind of life got flipped upside down. And I kind of saw how kind of bad we had it in New York at times. Mm. But being a kid in New York, it was it, it was great. It was fun. I, I didn't know any other place existed in the world. So, you know, I talk about in the book how, you know, sometimes we would sleep on the floor at McDonald's with my dad because he worked the night shift. But to us, it was like, you know, sleeping in McDonald's, yeah. like the greatest That's thing. That's awesome. Yeah. And so it, it wasn't until I kind of grew up a little bit and got out of New York where I was like, OK, you know, that was a little rough. But New York was fun. My, my dad was the spiritual head of our family and he always had us in church, always memorizing scripture. So a lot of where I am today is because of the seeds that, you know, that he imparted in me. And I think the cool thing about how you talk in your book, and this is one of the things that's refreshing, whenever people write an autobiography about themselves, is when they don't always seem to make themselves or their families out to be the hero. Like, you don't have to get into all the gritty detail because there are some secrets that should probably be kept within the family. But obviously, you wrote about how it was a very, very hard thing because you didn't just move from New York City to Florida. Your mom took you and the kids away from your dad and moved you to Florida. And so there was this fracturing of your entire family. And your dad, you, you call him, you know, lovingly, you call him pop but he was your everything. I mean, you mentioned several times in the book that he was like Superman to you. So get into that a little bit deeper, having such a close relationship with your father and then being split up. And this is well before you realize like you're, you're just like a lot of other people that look like you where they don't have their father in the family. Like the fatherlessness epidemic in the United States is rampant, but this was kind of different circumstances. Your mom just kind of made a decision. So walk me through all that. Yeah, it, it, it was tough. And my dad really was like Superman to me. Like mm. when I would get out of school, when I would get home, I really felt like me and him had like a special bond that me and my other brothers or my other siblings didn't share with him. But like I would run into his arms and he'd pick me up and swing me around like, but it was just me. And so I, I always felt special with him. And um, he was just great. I, th I thought he was a balanced guy in terms of discipline and love and and wanting us to do right and, and be honest kids and and productive kids. So, you know, I appreciated him for that. But once, you know, my, my mom and my dad had their falling out and my mom, you know, took us and went to Naples, it was just 
life just completely changed. I, I was in a new place of trying to fit in with now a, a white crowd in, in yeah. Naples, Florida, and really struggling in that regard. And just my mom trying to be both the, the mom and the dad, having to work all the time. It just, I, I kind of went into myself more in a way that I haven't, that I, that I didn't um, when I was um, in New York with my dad. So when you're in Florida and, and you're around what age, whenever you went, I'm trying to remember what age you were. 10. Okay. So you're 10 years old. So you're still very much so in your formative years. Was that really the first time that you really recognized kind of the, the racial differences or maybe racial angst? Because, you know, where you grew up in the South Bronx, you grew up in with a lot of people of color, that type of thing, people that would categorically describe themselves as that. But is that kind of the first time where it was like, oh, I, I'm very different than these people, or maybe these people had a different upbringing? Kind of talk me through that a little bit. Yeah. 100% culture shock. Like yeah. we were, me and my brothers were like, one, two, three of 13 black kids in our uh, high school when we got to um, yeah. Naples. But when, when we first got there, I was in elementary schools, just finishing up elementary school. And it was tough, man. Like, I, I'm, yeah. I, it's like a, a like a fly in some milk almost. And, you know, these, these kids are different. We, we, we come from different places. We, we have different habits. And, and one of the things that I was so used to in the New York was horseplay and messing around and roughhousing. And that was my way of trying to fit in with these kids where it was like, you know, we can play and have fun and maybe they'll like me, but they, they didn't take too kindly to me, you know, grabbing them by their ankles and dragging them down the hallway because I, I was <laughs> I was bigger than most kids as well. And so my, my first moment of really having that culture shock was when I got in trouble in school. My mom had to be called to the school and and the principal is, is literally concerned for these other kids' lives. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, I just, I just wanted to play. And my, my mom understands that and she knows yeah. where I'm just coming from. But for me, it was that moment where I really became the first moment of being self-conscious, self-conscious. So now when I go back to school, I'm thinking, I don't want to do anything that is going to make these kids not like me. And it really did develop a sense of anxiety and fear inside of me because I, di I didn't want to be rejected um, in a way of, of feeling rejected by my dad, um, and, and him not being there anymore, I was really searching for love and I didn't get it early on when I got to Naples. And man, and that's a through point for a lot of your book, this anxiety and this angst and this wanting to fit in and the, the racial stuff just kind of makes it even more different because you don't really know until you know. So like growing up for me, I grew up in a surprisingly very, very diverse town in Southwest Oklahoma because we had a lot of uh, people come through for work and uh, for military service. And so like when I go back and look at my class pictures, like in elementary school, there's way more people that aren't white than are white, even in an area that is like predominantly white. It wasn't until I got to college and I met people that grew up in small towns that only grew up around white people to where they're just like, they didn't know how to act or respond. They thought they had to be a different person when they ran into somebody that's from a different background or ethnicity or culture or race or something like that. So it's like, you don't know until you know. And so it's ignorance is bliss until it's right there in your face. But for you, one of the ways that you were able to kind of cope with that was basketball. And, and the funny thing about it now is it's funny looking back now because here you are, you're in the NBA. We'll get more into your NBA career in a minute. But for a while there, Jonathan, it did look like you were going to be a good athlete, much less a basketball player. You're kind of a that goofy kid, kind of a lanky body. Like you, I don't know, you're just like a baby giraffe. I don't know if you described yourself that way, but that's kind of what it felt like. So take us through how you developed in the game of basketball from childhood. And let's, let's at least take it up through your senior year of high school and then we'll pick it up from there. Yeah, I was, I was terrible when I, when I first started. <laughs> I, I tried I, to be I, nice. I tried to be nice, but it sounded good. like you were terrible. <laughs> I, I like to play a little bit in New York, like with my dad, with my brother, we would go to the rec center. But once I got to Naples, that was my first time being in an organized basketball situation. I didn't know what to do. And my first AAU team, I got kicked off by, and it's in the book as well. I got kicked off and they didn't even tell, they didn't even tell me I got kicked off. They, they just, just stopped, stopped showing up. Stopped picking me up for practice. <laughs> that was so funny. And, and, and so, yeah, so, but 
it, it was real incremental. And I got with a coach, Bora, um, who really started to teach me the fundamentals. And then I just I fell in love with the game and also fell in love with what it started to bring me. So once I get to middle school and I get to my freshman year of high school, people start noticing that Jonathan can play ball. And so the girls, you know, like me a little bit. The guy, the the guys who obviously look different th- differently than me, they want me to be on their team. They want me to play. And now I'm starting to feel that that sense of belonging and a sense of fitting in with these with these people that I didn't fit in with before. So I dove into basketball like headfirst, where I would play all day, every day, and I just watched myself get better and better and better. And to where I'm a senior in high school and I'm the number one player in the state of Florida. Um, and then I, I take a year at IMG and the, the offers start rolling in. My life starts changing dramatically, but I'm still struggling with these things in the background. I'm still struggling with fear and anxiety because I don't want to lose what I've gained. And so when I would play well, everything was great. My family loved me. Everybody was was loving me. But when I didn't play well, I hated myself because I was like, I'm going to go back to where it all started, where no one wants to be around me and I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to lose everything that I've worked so hard for. So I was always kind of tiptoeing along this line of trying to perform for for love. Right. Let's dig into that a little bit more. So we'll get into your college decision and all that here in a second, but I'm really, really curious about this because you you talk about at many points in your basketball career, whether in youth or all the way up through the pros, that you know, you're highly recruited, you're well sought after, you're well liked, people have this high ceiling thought about you, but you just had an overwhelming, if I could describe it in one word, doubt. You had a tremendous amount of doubt in yourself. And, you know, some people look at it as imposter syndrome. You may have heard someone talk about that to where it's just like, man, I shouldn't be here. And you're just terrified because you're assuming that if at any moment somebody is going to rip the veil off and they're going to realize that I'm not supposed to be here. So I think that has a lot to do with identity. And you found your identity in something very, very stable, you know, later on, you know, after your kind of high school years. But how did you how did you deal with that as you're growing up? Because you're going to be talking to an audience, Jonathan, that still feel that way. There's a yeah. lot of people that wherever they're working and whatever they're doing, they feel like an imposter as a father, or an imposter in their sales job or an imposter in their podcast job like me. Like they, they just feel that. What do you do with that angst? Well, at, at the time, I didn't do anything. At yeah. the time, I buried it and I didn't talk to anybody. And it was just something that I was really struggling with on my own. I would cry myself to sleep at night sometimes because I would have a bad game. And again, that just the self-doubt, the self-insecurity, the beating myself up over, I'm going to be the one that messes everything up all the time. Um, And and again, I don't belong here. And so I would brush it off and I'd get back out there and I'd have a great game and then everything would be great again. And it it would kind of, it would, it would cause me to not worry about it as much anymore until those feelings creep back up. Um, And I had a, a bad game. So it was always this ebb and flow of, doing well, doing negatively, but um, almost keeping up the show for people to see that Jonathan Isaac is great. And people did. People, yeah. The people around me were the ones that saw the greatness in me when I didn't see it in myself. Coach Gates, you know, you know, said to me when I was like 400 in the country, he said, you're going to be top five. And I'm like, I don't understand how you can say that. Like, How, how can you look at me and say that? And it, and it happened. Um, but for the longest time, I, I, I didn't do anything about it. And it wasn't until I was able by the love of Christ to find my identity in him and in, in what he says about me and, and his grace and his mercy. And I don't have to be perfect and I don't have to perform for his love because it's constant and it's always there. And I've, I've learned that more and more and it's been it's gotten easier for me. Um, and even, you know, coming up to the book, like people say, you know, how did you get to this place of being willing to stand? Because if you look at my, my life, 
two, you know, four or five years ago, I would have never been the guy that would have decided to stand by himself or do anything alone. Um, but I've had small increments of my life of trusting God and finding my identity in him, in him that has kind of caused this boldness and faith in me to grow. And I have I have the right people in my life. My pastors in my life. My wife is in my life that keep me encouraged and keep me fighting to, um, you know, where I am today, man. You're getting me all jacked up. I'm like ready to go. Like you're firing me up, but like we, we got to keep with the cadence here. People are going to wonder like, where did he go to college? So let's go and get back to that because we got to talk about Coach Gates. So in the book, you go into great detail about how you were recruited out of high school by these enormous blue chip college programs. And you ended up choosing to go to Florida State because of a very special relationship that you forged with one of the coaches there. Now, yeah. some people were expecting you to go to, you know, one of the blue bloods, right? So it's like, a, is it going to be Kentucky or is it going to be Kansas or is it going to be Duke or UNC? Like that's what they were expecting. And, you know, Florida State is not a perennial, uh, you know, powerhouse when it comes to college basketball, but you chose them. And so take me through that very, very special relationship. And I do want to kind of, well, actually take me through how uh, Coach Gates found you and all that. But then there's a quote uh, from your relationship with Coach Gates that we'll talk about here in a second. So take me through just how that initially got forged. Well, C Coach Gates, he he really did become like the father figure in my life. Um, you know, I, I had Ron there, I had Bora, and they were they were mentors and they were guides. But Coach Gates was the first one to really speak a level of belief into me that I didn't see into myself, and it kind of gave me some sense of peace and comfort with him. And so, as my dad was still in New York, and on top of that, he was the one that kind of orchestrated me kind of getting reconnected with my dad in the book as well. And so. Um, as I'm as I'm at ISB International School of Broward, this my coach tells me that you know, coach from Florida State wants to come out and see me work out. I'm anxious and nervous as heck, but I have a great workout. And from there on, you know, me, me and Coach Gates's relationship is spawned. And he just he he didn't care about basketball. He just took to me as an individual. And I think that he could he could see the the uneasiness, the anxiousness within me, and and kind of focused on. Me as an individual, he asked me about my name. He asked me about my family. How was I feeling? And all that stuff kind of helped me to, to relax a little bit and open up. And our, our relationship has just grown from there. And now I'm the, I'm the godfather to one of his sons, and uh, uh, we have a great relationship. That's an amazing story. And like, again, you, you went with the guy who first took an interest in you and you could see like, he would not have faulted you if you had gone to somewhere else. Like right. if you said, Hey, rock chalk Jayhawk, I'm going to Lawrence, Kansas. He would have been, he would have been the wind beneath your wing, sending you out there and all that. But that's not really how it went. But I think that there's this one part, this may be one of my favorite quotes from the entire book because it really gave us, cause you can say that your relationship with coach Gates is good and you can give some examples, but this showed that he actually gave a damn. And I loved this quote. Uh, it was whenever you were being recruited. He said, the day you get drafted, we're going to make sure that your relationship with your father is restored and you feel comfortable enough to have him at your table, right? Because yeah. when you get drafted, you got your table there, you got your family, friends, those types of things. And he knew that you were somewhat estranged from your father. And that just didn't sit well with him. So he wasn't talking about X's and O's. He wasn't talking about, you know, how to come off the screen faster. He wasn't talking about getting a shot up faster. He wasn't talking about hand in the cookie jar. He wasn't talking about any of that. He's talking about your relationship with your father. So yeah. For me, that was the first time that I realized, oh man, Coach Gates is that dude. And like, he was going to be that dude for you no matter what. Is that kind of, you know, how did that strike you? Because as a young man, you're you're still young and dumb. And like, how did you even notice that he was really digging down to care about you at that moment? I definitely didn't notice it at the time, um, yeah. the magnitude of what it was. Like he literally went and, and sent my dad a letter, called my dad on the phone, orchestrated for my dad to come to one of my games. And from there, it kind of went from, you know, him showing up to more games and us being able to talk and communicate and foster more of a relationship. And I was able to really 
um, you know, foster a stronger relationship with my dad once I really came to Christ. And so, but Coach Gates is a huge, huge, um, you know, part of that. And I definitely didn't understand it at the time, but I, I, I've, I've seen it and I've, I've appreciated him more and more for what he did um, back then. It was such a cool thing to hear that because you hear a lot of bad stories about recruiting, frankly. So you get this kid that gets recruited, you know, the whole family trusts him. Hey, we need you starter day one. And then you come in and you're, you know, third down on the, on the depth chart in football, or you never get, see the court of basketball or something like that. So it's really good and refreshing to hear a story about someone that goes someplace. And it's kind of like, it really was a good match. So you have your, your first year at Florida state, uh, it goes well for you. You guys make the tournament. And after your first year, you're a highly touted, uh, draft pick, you know, you're considered by many that you're going to be an NBA, a lottery draft pick, but you wanted to come back to school because you were scared, but Coach Gates basically said, I'm not going to have a spot for you next year, son. You need to go to the NBA. But let's go ahead and fast forward to draft night. You heard NBA Commissioner Adam Silver announce this. With the sixth pick in the 2017 NBA draft, the Orlando Magic selects Jonathan Isaac from Florida State University. Now, I got some breaking news for you, Jonathan. Most people are not going to hear that in their lives with their name in that sentence. But a lot of people have that dream. They have the dream, but it happened to you. Take us through that night. What was that like? Well, it was it was so fast. I think that's the one thing that I remember about the night. It was so fast. And I could tell even in, you know, being so young, I could tell that I didn't understand it the way that everybody else understood it. And so you had other players that were they just seemed so ready. They seemed so primed for the moment. They were celebrating, you know, uh, you know, the night after the draft. And it just seemed like they had, you know, their bearings. But for me, it was like, I was just like, what is going on? And yeah. I, I I grabbed some pizza from like a, a pizza shop a block away from my hotel. And I just went to my hotel room. I sent my, my family home with an Uber and I'm just in my room. Like I'm an NBA basketball player. And, yeah. um, you know, part of me was like, I did it. You know, it's so good. You know, thank you, God, all this different stuff. But part of me is like, I don't even know what, what, what happens next. And the next day I'm on a plane to Orlando and now it's time to start my NBA career and <laughs> off we went. Man, that, that's such a crazy story because it does seem like some of these kids, like they knew it, but for you, it was kind of a later realization that this might be a reality where some right. of these kids might've getting pumped up in AAU ball when they were 13 or 14, you know what right. I mean? They might've right. been getting talked to by an Adidas rep that wasn't supposed to be talking to him or, you know, a college coach that wasn't allowed to be talking to him. So it's a very interesting story. Uh, and your pops was there the night you got drafted. So uh, your relationship, well, actually I wasn't gonna ask you about that. Let's talk about that. So coach Gates said he was gonna make that happen for you when he's recruiting you when you're still a teenager, when you're still in college. And then here you are on draft night and Pops is at the table. What was that like? It was great. It was great. It was definitely like full circle and it definitely seemed surreal. But um, exactly what he said was was it. And it, it wasn't even, it wasn't like, oh, we don't have a relationship, but just because Coach Gates said it, I'm going to invite you. It was like, I called my dad on the phone and was comfortable enough to say, yo, man, I want you at this you know event for me. And he was extremely ecstatic and was excited to be there. And he was already in New York as well, so it just worked out perfectly. That did work out perfectly. I was so glad to hear that because it would have been a really crappy story if Coach Gates had said that and then he wasn't with you there on draft night. So it worked out really, really well. But you go to Orlando, you have your first year in Orlando and you experienced several injuries. So you had setbacks. It wasn't, you know, your idyllic, you know, first year in the league, but you had a lot of rehab time. So you had a lot of downtime. And it's around this time as well that you ran into this random guy that you described with a Bahamian accent named Doc. And so from the moment you met him, Doc would have a profound impact on you, your life, your walk with Christ. He's a major center point of this book. He wrote the foreword of your book, even though I wrote, I read the foreword and I'm like, who's this Doc guy? And then you start reading the book and you're like, holy cow. So who's Doc? 
Doc, Doc is the man. I mean, Doc is my my pastor today. Um, you know, he he married me and my wife. He's a friend. He's a mentor. He's, he's just he's, he's just a you know he's, he's my pastor. Um, you know, I, yeah. I go to him for advice and mentorship and almost everything that I do now today. But our relationship started with, and it, it's it's so dope because I think about it as like only God could know what I was going through at that point in time. Um, and and again, that's how I it felt so orchestrated. It felt like God knew exactly where I was, and that is what you know ultimately led me to kind of say, Jesus, you're real. Come into my life, be Lord of my. Uh, come into my heart, be Lord of my life, because I got to the realization that, man, you love me for me, and you see me in this moment. And so, I'm 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 injured. Um, I'm I'm already on this kind of course to like find out more about Christ because I'm I went to this chapel service and the chaplain said, why do you call me Lord Lord and not do what I say? It's Luke six forty six, and I'm like, yo, that's me. I'm I'm living my life. I'm I'm doing my thing, but I'm not really checking for God in any in any way, but. If I have a bad game or something like that, I'll pray or, you know, delete all my music and listen to gospel music until I yeah. <laughs> put it back on my phone. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm getting on the elevator and this guy is, is, is getting off and he looks at me and he says, I can tell you how to be great. And I'm like, great. Tell me how to be great. I'm like, you must not know who I am. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but he says, I can tell you how to be great. And I say, you know, tell me. He said, you have to know Jesus. And I'm like, Jesus, like I'm a Christian. Yet, but that was it. And from that point on, it's like, and, and I don't want to give too much of it away because I want you guys to get the book and really get the 411, but um, my life just kind of turns upside down. And I, I start to see, you know, God orchestrating my footsteps, his footsteps, um, but it ultimately comes down to uh, him becoming my pastor. And I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to give you all the details, but to this day, he's just a, a great man in my life. And to get those interior details, you got to get the book. Yeah, and guys, it will be in the show notes. Uh, there's no way we can get into the amount of detail in the book, even though it's it's a short, it's a quick read, but there's so much detail there. But, but he plays. What I, what I will say real quick is just that you know an, another highlight to Doc is one of the he he's the one who kind of introduced me to the love of Christ and loving. It, it, it it's one thing to say that that Jesus loves me for who I am and all these different things, but God uses people. And God placed Doc in my life to kind of show me what the love of God was like, and we had moments of real like intimate uh, 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 emotion to where I'm frustrated and I'm upset in the book and he walks me through it in love. He doesn't condemn me. He doesn't, uh, you know, see this NBA player who has all these problems and throws me away. Um, he, he believes in me the same way that Coach Gates believes in me. But I believe, you know, to, to a greater degree, he, he called me great when I didn't see myself as great. Um, and, and now I'm, I'm starting to walk in what I believe is is some form of greatness. And, and it's, it's, it's just dope. Well, the other thing about what it seemed to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, what it seemed like what Doc would do with you is he would actually listen, which is what any good you know pastor or father or friend would do. They're going to listen, but they're not going to manipulate. Because when somebody is in the, in the places in life where they're so down and so beat up and so depressed and so anxious like you were at several times throughout your life leading up to this moment, you're a really, really good person to manipulate and to move and like, hey, I'm going to do this with you and I'm going to use him for my purposes. But what it seemed like Doc was doing is he was trying to get you to a real sense of who Christ was and who Christ could be in your life. Because I, I think you you said early on in your your childhood, I think you talk about this in the book, you know, you did the prayer, you prayed your prayer, you raised your hand and that kind of thing. And so you were a Christian, kind of like I was born in Oklahoma. So I'm a Christian, right? Because I was born right. on this red dirt, kind of the same thing. But he helped you get an authentic level of faith. Would you, would you say that's fair to say? 100%. He, he helped me to see that a relationship with Christ is something that's tangible. It's something like, 
God is our God wants to be our our father, our friend to lead us through life um, and 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 help us to become who He created us to be. And I already, I had this vision in my mind of being a Christian was just you go to church from sometimes and you pray sometimes. But it, it, now I really do see it as a full life of of growth and 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 challenges and ultimately becoming who God has called you to become. And that's an incredible message. Like, guys, we're going to talk about some more cool stuff on the latter half of this interview, but that may be the nugget that you need to hear today because a lot of guys check the box. That is what they do. So they go to church two or three times a month. They check the box. Like, they they volunteer and drive the bus to kids' camp, you know, once a year, and then they take a year or two or ten off. But that's not an authentic level of faith. Like, the fruits of your, your Christian walk should be evident. And if you don't see fruits around you, it's probably going to be an issue for you moving forward in terms of the authentic level of your faith. But we do need to go ahead and get into July 31st, 2020, because you became a household name on that night. Like I already told you, I, I, you know, I was a Thunder fan, you know, I'd watch almost every single Thunder game, but I didn't exactly know who you were at this point, but to kind of take people all back to the year of 2020, because most people deleted it from their memory banks. This was of course, after George Floyd died in police custody. This was after Breonna Taylor was accidentally shot by police and racial tensions were not at the highest they'd ever been. I mean, we fought a civil war for Christ's sake, but with, there was, it was high. Like it was high of sorts. And this was fueled by organizations like Black Lives Matter, like the Democratic Party, like the mainstream media. But before your first game in the NBA bubble, most people should remember the NBA bubble. There was a nice big break because of COVID and the NBA is coming back to continue the season. Y'all were supposed to be playing the Brooklyn Nets and you did play the Brooklyn Nets. But during the national anthem, when everyone else on the court, the opposing team, the coaches, the trainers, the referees, everybody, even your own teammates were kneeling, you alone stood for the national anthem. They were all wearing shirts that said Black Lives Matter across the front, and you were simply standing there in your jersey top and your warm-up pants. But that's where most of us pick up the story about Jonathan Isaac. But a lot happened behind the scenes prior to the decision you made to go ahead and stand. So take us through what happened leading up to that with you, with your teammates, kind of everything that was coming along with that. Well, yeah, what what happened to um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all, all those different things were obviously tragic. Um, what I tried my best to do was to take a step back and say, what is the best way for Jonathan to respond in this moment in a way that would that I felt would bring change? Um, the same way that people who disagree with me or decided to kneel in that moment decided for themselves what they thought would bring change. And for them, it was kneeling and wearing a t-shirt, t-shirt but for me, it wasn't. What I tried to do was look at my life and say, the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ has been the thing that has changed my life. And I cannot think of a greater message and antidote for the times that we see today than the gospel. Um, and during this time, I'm talking to my pastor all the time about you know what I'm feeling and we're leading up to this moment. And before we actually go into the bubble, my pastor's preaching a me- preaching a message, and it's about um, Jesus, you know, almost being you know being captured by the Roman guard. And Peter lunges forward and cuts off the guy's ear. And and Jesus says, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And he heals the guy's ear. And I was thinking about, uh, well, first off, what the guy who got his, he- his ear healed had to be thinking. And yeah. you have this, you know, they're saying this, this Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the Messiah, all these different things. And they're like, we don't believe this. And next thing you know, my ear is chopped off and now it's it's healed. I'm, I'm sure he had a you know whole confusion in his mind about, you know, belief in that Jesus was really who he said he was. Um, but w- w- what I didn't want to do was step into a fight. Um, and, and during that time, there was so much anger, there was so much unrest, there was so much divisiveness being spewed, um, you know, all over the place. And it was so easy um, to kind of get lost in the sauce of the moment. And so I, I, 
I, I didn't want to I didn't want to do that. I wanted to I wanted to step above it and offer the message that I felt that could really bring change, which was simply if we could love each other the way that God loves us, which is in spite of our failures, in spite of our faults, in spite of um, our sin, then we could have real change. If we if we could forgive each other the way that God forgives us, which is in spite of us, um, that we could have real change. And that's so that's what I decided to stand up and say. Yeah. And it wasn't. uh a lot of your teammates weren't happy with you. They did know you were going to do that. So some people thought you surprised them when you went out there, but no, the, the team did have a meeting and you kind of discussed that. But there's a great, a great quote from the book, rather, not great, but the quote is this, kneeling for the anthem to symbolize support for black lives was no symbol at all. It was an order. And my allegiance to the cause was measured solely by my obedience to that command. Now, this is where we get into worldview when it comes to left versus right versus authoritarianism or totalitarianism or things like that is this was a requirement to do this. Like if you didn't do this, you were doing something that was antithetical to morality, to, to most people in culture. And I thought about this at the time. What if it wasn't you that had done it? What if it would have been a random white player like at the time? Can you like literally I know like there wasn't one that did that. So we didn't have to like, you know, experience what that would have been like, but take, take the, 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 the whitest player you can think of in 2020, I'll let y'all use your own imagination. What if they were the ones to stand up? What would it have been like? Because you got a lot of vitriol and hate for this. And I can only imagine what it would have been like for somebody that didn't look like you. And that's whenever we start putting people in these boxes of immutable characteristics, because you look this way, you're supposed to think a certain way because I look this way. I'm supposed to think a certain way, but like, take me through the aftermath. Cause you end up playing the game. You had an okay game and all those types of things. But what happened immediately after? I mean, because it was it was a storm for you in some good ways, but in a lot in a lot of bad ways as well. And, and, and the the first question after the game was, "Do you even believe that Black Lives Matter?" It's um, such an unfair question to start off, but you knew what you were in for. Yeah, I I, I knew what I was in for. Um, and but at the same time, it was it was it was hectic. It was it was uh, it was rough, and obviously all of the negativity came, but. The, the one thing that I focused on was all of the positivity and encouragement that came as well. The people who said that they were inspired and willing now, now willing to stand up for what they believe in um, and to deliver it with grace and love, that, that's what encouraged me. And again, I, I, I have the right people around me to encourage me and to keep me focused on all those different things, but it was tough. And then you, you add into the fact that the next game after standing up for the National Anthem, I tear my ACL. Yeah. Then you have a whole nother heap of pylon of, oh, my gosh, a knee for a knee and God did this and all that different stuff. Um, but what, what 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 I quickly understood about, you know, God's purposes and what God allows is like, yo, if if I didn't get hurt, there would be no book and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be able to tell my story and for people to know more about me and 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 to be encouraged and to find Christ and all those different things. So I was OK, um, but it definitely was a whirlwind. So let's go back to that, because I remember the, the day all the stuff broke in the news about one NBA player in Orlando decided that he was going to stand. And then the next day, that player by the same name that I just started following on Instagram and just started following on Twitter, very next game, boom, knee goes. And I want you to talk a little bit more about that because that's when you get to see the true evil in some people that they were so happy to watch you be hurt. Now, there have been people that, you know, they hate the Orlando Magic. So any player on the Magic that gets hurt, they're going to they're going to be excited because they just love the Miami Heat. That's their team and they they hate the Orlando Magic. Okay, whatever. But like these people 
we're, we're so excited that your career might be over with. Like I still get pissed off by one star reviews on my podcast. And here you are, you are having people that are just so happy that you're going to have to go under the knife and that you may never recover. Give me some more on that. You, you kind of just, you know, glazed over it, but that, that's, that sucks. That sucks really bad. It, it was really tough to swallow, um, you know, in the moment, but, but ultimately you, you, you don't win like that. And, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, glory in anybody's defeat or demise or, hurt or anything like that. And and what I just tried to try my best to do is just keep focused and, and and keep moving in the right direction. But I don't it's almost like I don't have to account for somebody who would be who who would be willing to do something like that. And so um, you know, for me to go back at them and for me to be angry is to become them. And that's what I don't want to do. And so um yes it was tough. Yes it was you know, awfully tough. But again, I had the right people around me to keep me encouraged and to keep me focused on the right things. Like, you know, you have a chance to write your story down so people can have their lives changed. Hey, it's a great perspective to have. And a lot of people wouldn't have the emotional wherewithal or the support system to where they could respond in a very, very healthy way. But what do you have to say to, to fans like me? So like I told you, you know, uh, before the Thunder came to Oklahoma City, I was, uh, you know, every NBA playoffs fan or Michael Jordan fan. So anytime Michael Jordan did anything, you know, I was like absorbed into all that. But then whenever, whenever I started watching games in the NBA bubble, and I saw Black Lives Matter emblazoned on the court and understanding what I do understand about that organization and about their worldview and how it's antithetical to the Christian worldview. I just said, you know what? I'm not going to support a league or an organization that hates me in my way of thinking. And so it, it hasn't hurt my life at all to just turn off the NBA. I've not watched five minutes of an NBA game. I have no idea who's even in the playoffs right now if it doesn't pop up randomly on Twitter. But what would you say? Because obviously it affects your bottom line as a, as a player in the NBA to for these fans that are just like, no, I'm done. Like I'm going to go watch, you know, a racing or I'm going to go watch fighting or something like that to where I can just watch a sport and veg out. I don't have to be preached to. Yeah. I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, each fan and individual is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's you, it's your life. You can do exactly what you want to do. Um, and, and honestly, it's the same thing with the NBA. You know, I don't, I don't control what they, what they decide to put on the court or what they decide to roll out. Um, I hope that, you know, you guys can still watch me play. <laughs> hey, I'll watch you anytime the Orlando Magic are playing on TNT. I'm watching. All right. Don't you worry. No, I, I appreciate it. But yeah, I, I, I think, what I've tried my best to do is in, in my conversations, in my demeanor, it is to win the people that disagree with me um, to the best of my ability. And so um, what I don't want to do is get into the fight and the war of going back and forth about who's right and who's wrong and who's good and who's evil. Yes, I believe that you should ultimately and un unashamedly stand up for what it is that you believe in. Um, but I do believe that you should do it in love in an effort to win the people that disagree with you because they're ultimately just like you before you found understanding and before, you know, they're just like me before I found Christ. And so, um, you know, if God didn't love me first, then I wouldn't be where I was at today. And so, uh, so yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I necessarily wouldn't be the one automatically to just be like, I'm not going to watch anymore. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Um, but, you know, honestly, to each his own, and it's your time and it's your money. So you can do it with, with what you want. Hey, and I have two kids uh, below the age. I got a two-year-old and a two-month-old right now. And so this idea that I could sit down and watch three hours of anything is just hilarious to me right now. So like maybe down the road, but I do have a favorite NBA player right now. And it's you, Jonathan Isaac. You're All the right. only guy I can get behind right now. And Steven Adams, he's still cool. But the thing that's interesting about this is, and by the way, 
if you're going to have these these conversations with people to change their minds, this is a PSA that I'm sure, Jonathan, you would sign on to. Don't do that on social media. How many people have ever written like a 12 paragraph long, you know, paragraph on, on Facebook and posted it and changed somebody's worldview in their mind? Spending all day worried about what someone else is going to tweet or subtweet about you, it is not going to work. Get in front of these people, have actual conversations with these people, let them hear your voice, let them hear your opinions. But you made everybody mad back in 2020 because you're such a bigoted loser. You're, you know, you're a house this and a coon and all these horrible names that people decide they they could call you without it being a big issue. And then you decided, Jonathan, that you're going to stir the pot again and not get the jab. What's wrong with you? Come on, man. Like we know that the jab was going to save you, especially if you're a very healthy athlete, the jab was going to be that next thing to send you to that next level. But I'm kind of saying all that a little bit tongue in cheek, but that was kind of the next time you popped up on people's radar for, for fans of that are maybe casual fans of the NBA. Here's this Jonathan Isaac guy again, causing all this trouble. You had some, you know, mainstream media outlets come at you and they, they tried to like, you know, twist your words around to kind of like attach you to some people that you would never attach yourself to. So take me through all that nonsense, because obviously there was a lot of pressure on you not to kneel, but you stood anyway. And there was a lot of pressure on you to get the jab and you chose not to. So take us through it. Yeah, I mean, people started to, to ask me if I just wanted to be a troublemaker and go against what everybody was doing. But it, it really wasn't the case. Um, you know, when when COVID and everything broke out, um, you know, I, I just kind of I kind of watched and, and there, there definitely was a feeling of unease with the way that it was pushed and the way that, you know, different things were shouted down, like like natural immunity, um, you know, like talking about exactly what, you know, who 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 is at most risk of COVID and all these different things um, are, are just not being talked about and not having a conversation about. And so there was there was a sense of uneasiness with me. So I was like, OK, I'm going to tread lightly. Um, and then I kind of got to the point where I said, look, I'm healthy. Um, I've had COVID already, uh, which, which, which is a big deal. I, uh, I'm not in, in risk of having a, a, a negative reaction to catching COVID, a severe reaction of catching COVID because I'm not in the age range. I don't have any comorbidities, comorbidities. I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm going to be okay. Um, and to me, it wouldn't be wise to open myself up to the possibility of having an adverse reaction to the vaccine that wouldn't stop me from getting the the virus again in the first place. And so, uh, so to me, honestly, that was like, it was like common sense. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm fine. I'm in a good place. I don't I don't I don't have to take this. But then again, it was the pressure of you know feeling the forcefulness of it people's religious and medical exemptions being denied and people yeah. losing their jobs. It was like, man, what is really going on here? But the light bulb really went off for me when I kind of got the understanding of like, okay, this is not just about a vaccine. This is obviously a political thing. This is obviously, you know, biased to a degree about sides and who's right and who's wrong and making it a moral argument. When the Rolling Stone published that article about, you know, me coming to my decision by studying black history and watching Donald Trump press conferences. And, 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 and it, it was just it was completely wrong. It was it was just a blatant lie. And um, I'm just glad that I had the opportunity the next day to clear the air with my press conference. And that, you know, obviously went crazy viral. Um, but people were just like, you know, that sounds about right. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it doesn't sound crazy. And then I even had I even had, you know, news reporters that were in the room with me come up to me after and they were like, uh, I agree with you. <laughs> I agree yeah. with you. You think, and then I mean, you you go through the course of the season. I was I was probably the only, you know, I think the only player on my team that didn't get COVID. <laughs> uh, right. Course of the season, a bunch of my teammates got COVID, and they were like, "Oh man, we should have listened to you, Ji." All this different stuff, but um, yeah. Well, I gotta tell you, I can't wait 
for the next thing you're going to do to make everybody mad because the first two acts were really awesome, but I'm sure the third act is going to be even better. But wasn't it so you don't have to answer this because I want you to get in trouble. I thought it was hilarious when Steve Kerr, you know, who's basically like the moral Jesus of all the coaches in the NBA got COVID. Because he was the one preaching about it, got to wear the mask. He got four shots, five shots. Hey, let's get another shot. And he still got COVID. Now, I only say that I'm glad he got that because he had basically no symptoms. He didn't even have a cough or a sniffle. But I did find that to be funny. Again, you don't have to say anything. That was me that said it. Guys, it was me that said it if you're reading the transcript. Kyle said it, not Jonathan. But I do want to talk about this as well. You've been out for a while. Okay. Now, if you read anything that's in the news on you right now, you haven't said anything incendiary in about seven minutes. So they're only talking about this next coming season because we're in the middle of the playoffs. But as we look forward into the beginning of the 2022-2023 season, everybody's expecting you back on the court. So will we see you back on the court to start the season? Uh, It definitely looks that way. It definitely looks like I'm going to be ready. Um, I'm excited. I'm motivated. And and I can't wait to, you know, touch down on the court and help this team win games. So... Take me through a little bit of the anxiety, though, because that was a very PR answer. You're very good at this. You you know, you gave me the answer I wanted so I could move past it. But you've not this would be two full seasons, correct, that you have not been on the court. I mean, even even for a youngin like to and you're still very, very young. But even for like a kid, if you miss two years of something, there's going to be some growing pains. You're not the feel is the game's going to be fast. The ball's not going to feel right. Like what what do you have to do as a professional athlete to make sure that you can come back in October, November and be legitimately ready to go? Yeah, I'm honestly just going to have to take it in stride. Um, yeah. I, I don't know exactly you know how everything is going to feel once I get back out there on the court. But I feel good right now and, and I'm just I'm, I'm steadily progressing and, and feel that I'm going to be, you know, 100 percent ready to go when the season starts. Um, and I'll just go through the you know, kind of growing pains of coming back off an injury as 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 they happen. Um, but I'm, I'm excited. I, I feel good. Um, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. I don't feel like, you know, I'm going to have to make, you know, huge adjustments to get back mm-hmm. on the court. Um, you know, I, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to do just fine. Very good. Well, we will certainly all be rooting for you and praying for that uh, that strength that you're going to need later on this year. And one last question about basketball, and then we'll get into a few other topics that are more cultural in nature. But I know you've probably thought about this quite a bit, and I have a sense of maybe what your answer might be. But when you think about Jonathan Isaac, the retired NBA player, what does life look like for Jonathan Isaac after professional basketball? You know... I am. I feel like I'm steadily figuring it out. Everyone is. Everyone kind of throws around the preacher, uh, pastor um, for me, but I'm, I'm always reluctant and hesitant to kind of affirm that because I, it is such a, a a large mantle to to bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I, I have you know preached from time to time. But yeah, I I just want to continue to grow. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working on a second book right now, but I'm, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Uh, you know, why? <laughs> oh, I come on. Why I stand is 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 being talked about, you know, in terms of being turned into a movie, and so um, act, actor may be in my future. Uh, okay. So I, I mean, I, it's just it's I'm I'm just taking it in stride. I'm trying my best to walk out, um, you know, this Christianity thing as as humbly and as you know rightly as I know how. Um, but but God is, you know, in, in all of this, I feel like God is continuing to kind of, you know, foreshadow my purpose as as bigger than you know anything that I've ever imagined, and and I'm I'm just trying to walk it, <laughs> walk it through. Hey, I understand, guys, and don't worry. I'll make him tell me off air what the second book's going to be about, and then I'll drop it to you on the download. You got to go get the first one, and then we'll talk about the second one. Hey, absolutely. Guys, it's in the show notes. How many times do I have to tell you? Stop what you're doing, pull over, and buy the book, okay? I told you to do it. Now do it. Now, 
I do want to talk about some topics that are a little bit outside of the world. They're, they're definitely outside of the world of basketball. So I've asked some other people that are, that are kind of in the same vein as you, the same question. And I, I've really enjoyed the answers that I've gotten to it. And it's this idea of tokenism. And so I believe uh, Pastor Vody Bauckham was the first guy that kind of talked about this because a lot of people feel like he's being tokenized inside of the evangelical world because he's the black guy preacher that thinks like I do or, or something like that. That's how they bastardize in describing it. But for you, obviously... After you decided to stand for, for the national anthem, a lot of people with American flags in their bios and, and people that are very, very conservative, very, very much so right wing, all of a sudden became you know supporters of you. And they wanted you to talk on their show and, and come to their event and, and talk in front of their congregation or something like that. So do you ever feel like you are being tokenized? by Republicans or by conservatives because you are a black man that happens to have, you know, viewpoints that aren't shared by a lot of your black brethren. Uh, I don't I don't think tokenize is the right word. Um, I, I think, listen, you know, when it comes to, you know, that side of the aisle and obviously the Christian uh, sphere, there are more things that I agree with and align with than, you know, the other side. And so I think there there is a form of commonality um, that goes beyond skin color with the I- ideals and um you know, in, in that sense. But what I've tried to do is stick to my message. So whether I am at a Republican event, whether whether I'm at, you know, at, at anything, my 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 message is Jesus. My message is um, the love of Jesus Christ is going to be the thing that changes this world if we're willing to show it. Um, you know, my goal is to, to to win as many people as possible. And I think the only way to do that is to love the people first. Um, and so th- that's where I'm at. And that's what I've continued to kind of preach and Um, you know, give people the courage and the boldness to stand up for their convictions. And uh, whether that's at a Republican event, I haven't been I haven't been invited to any events on the other side. Um, if, If I was, I would go and I would share the same message. Hey, that's funny because I tell people all the time, like, hey, why don't you ever go on all these other shows? It's like, I go where I'm invited. Like, I'm going to talk about, you know, the gospel and I'm going to talk about Undaunted Life and I'm going to talk about everything we do where I'm invited to do so. And I'll even go on shows where I know that they're going to try to like antagonize me or get me to say something crazy that they can clip out later. Because if I'm not there to talk to the people that would want to do that to me anyway, because they're not going to be hearing me, they're going to be hearing whatever they want me to say, right? Um, I want to get into this because we kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the interview, but fatherlessness in general. So in the United States, I mean, back 50 years ago, the uh, I think in the white community, it was 3% of kids were born, you know, in out of wedlock uh, families. And now it's 30%. For, for black kids, it was 25%. Now it's 75%. And I think currently half of all Latino children are born in a family where the mother and father are not there. They're not married. And it's having a tremendously negative impact on all of our humanity as a culture, as Americans. And everybody likes to pick on, on, on black culture as, you know, three out of five or three out of four of all those kids are kind of born out of wedlock. But talk to me a little bit uh, about kind of what you've seen. Cause you're not a father, like, you know, that's not something that you're dealing with now, but you did see your relationship with your dad and just kind of what, what would you say? What would you say if you were a preacher or a consultant right now on the fatherlessness epidemic that we're seeing in all racial groups in the United States? Man, I, I would just say that men are needed, um, fathers are needed, and uh, Christ is needed uh, at the end of the day. I, I feel like uh, as as your heart is changed and as you grow as a man of God, you assume the responsibility and see the you see the necessity um, to be a leader in your household and to you know rear your children in the way that um, would honor God. And so that, that that's where my mindset is at right now. And honestly, it probably wouldn't be there if, it, if uh, you know, at the time that I wasn't, you know, a, a, a Christian yet. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I just think when I, when I look out into the world and I see all of the, 
you know, the destruction of family and all the things that are going on, all I want to do is be someone who upholds it um, and try to promote the message of upholding it so somebody else could see the need of it and, uh, and uphold it themselves. And so just to be a light and a beacon and, and an example um, that it does, it does still happen today. And uh, it's a good thing when it does happen. And I think the best thing, because I know I'm the type of guy that I'll I'll stay up late at night because I can't fall asleep because I'm worried about kids that don't have fathers. I'm worried about babies that are being aborted in the womb. I'm worried about all these things that don't directly affect me. And then sometimes that affects how I treat my two sons because dad's distracted or dad's angry or dad's frustrated or something like that. And it's like, that's how I can affect the next generation the best. Those are two arrows in my quiver that I can shoot into the future and, and extend the love of Christ to other people. So I think that's a good thing for people to remember as well. Uh, another thing that I want to talk about, go ahead. Me and my wife are, you know, you know, both come from, uh, you know, families that are that aren't together. Um, but, yeah. you know, we have an obvious commitment to Christ and, an, and a commitment to stay together and to, to rear children that way. And so being able to 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 rewrite the story of your life and what you've experienced or anything, you know, like that is to me is the answer. And so we can we can, you know, pick on it and, and, and you know, demean people for being in that situation. Um, but at the same time, we have to be ones that are an example to that ourselves. Absolutely. That's a good word. So I want to talk about just race in America in general. And again, I feel like the racial topic is kind of boring because people kind of have their tribes and there's no, there's not a whole lot of nuance to really dig into, but I've been reliably informed, Jonathan, that America is the most racist country that's ever existed. And so in your opinion, and I know that's kind of loaded, I know that's pretty loaded, but in your opinion, is the United States of America a racist country? No. Uh, and honestly, I think it's as easy as, as leaving it there. Um, you know, one of the things that my pastor says all the time about us as individuals, he will say that we haven't done everything right, mm -hmm. but we haven't done everything wrong either. And honestly, that's how I see America. Um, you know, America hasn't done everything right, um, but at the end of the day, it hasn't done everything wrong either. And there has been progress, there has been change. Are there still racist people? Yes. Um, you know, are there still racist things that happen every every single day? I mean, take 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 Buffalo. Um, yeah. You know, right now, as tra as tragic and terrible as that is, um, that doesn't account for uh, the majority of people. Or I'm not going to you know place that on all white people. It's one individual. Um, that 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 went down that road and and that that needs God <laughs> but whatever um and and so 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 I think just the simple answer is no um and and I would be up for defending that and I I think kind of to a degree we have to kind of just throw that away when when people do you know say those things or affirm those things like to not give it to not give it breath it's hard not to give a breath. It's hard when you want to defend. And like, if you're ever put in a position where you're having to defend everyone that has the same level of melanin as you, you're already losing regardless of the topic, because you know who I don't speak for? White people. I definitely don't speak for all white people. I can barely speak just for my, the white people that live in my house with me, right? Because these are all different people. Like they have their own way of thinking and my little boys are going to have their own personalities and their own way of seeing the world. But, but Jonathan, my understanding of history and, and the truths of the Bible that I think anything short of Jesus's triumphant return and, and a new earth, 
That's the only thing that will solve the race issue in the world, much less in America. But that is something that we as gospel believing Christians, we have to be able to speak into culture about racial issues because it comes up in culture. And that becomes a stumbling block for people that think that people like me think Jesus was a white guy and that I only worship Jesus because of white supremacy or patriarchy or something like that. So when you hear people that say some of these things that are kind of the bumper sticker back of the t-shirt slogans about race in America, how do you in a gospel centered way, how would you train me and everybody else to speak into those topics? regardless of what you look like well i mean i mean i, I think for starters you know sp speaking into it as well but i think the the most simple way and the most necessary way is to be an example um mm. of it so if you you take the you take the story of the good samaritan and you have the you have this the, the samaritan that was the ultimately the one who went and helped the person who was you know obviously down and uh uh, left the money and all those different things. So it's it's one thing to speak about it, but I think what is really worthwhile is to be the one that is about it. And 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 love is an action word. Um, and if and and you're talking about race and and the divide, that's going to continue on forever because ultimately the, Satan is the prince of the power in the air, and this world is going to continue to go in the direction that it's going. But the people who have the understanding um, of Christians and people who understand that in order to in order to see real change happen, we are going to have to love people that look different than us, that are different than us, that have wronged us in some certain way. And Jesus said it, you have to love your enemies. You have to pray for those who despitefully use you. And to me, if, if us as Christians are willing to be an example of that love and light to the world, then we could see we, we could see real change. But the, the world is going to continue to be the world. The race war divide is going to continue to be spewed and 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 elevated and pushed in the forefront of everyone's mind. But the people who have understanding can be effective agents of change if they're willing to do it rather than say it. Absolutely. Well, hey, we're going to take you to the last segment of the show here because I like to do something in some of, some of my interviews, and it's a segment called, What Would You Say to Someone That Said? So I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said? And then I'm going to fill in the blank. But this is lightning round, okay? You have 30 seconds maximum to respond to each one of these, okay? So if you want to get into a big, long soliloquy about it, I'm going to cut you off. You got 30 seconds max, lightning round. So you up for it? Yep. All right, let's go. First one here. What would you say to someone that said, I could beat you one-on-one? -on -one? I wouldn't even respond. You wouldn't even respond? Somebody rolls a ball to you? You wouldn't You wouldn't just say, okay, let me get warmed up? If, if they're rolling a ball to me, let's go. I'll, I'll spot you. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to 11. I, I, I think I just tweeted somebody. I think it was Gad Saad that I'd spot him 10 points if we played to 11. Hey, I will just say, if you and I ever meet, which I hope that happens someday, I will have a ball with me and I will roll it to you. And I will tell you, my game consists of two things. I will crush it. Hey, Jonathan, you listen here. It's going to, it's going to be rebounds and flagrant fouls. So those are my two best parts of my basketball game. So you just need to watch out. I'm just saying, just saying one of these days, we're going to be in the same gym and we'll figure it out. I will All not right. take it easy on you. <laughs> I would not expect you to come on now. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, Jonathan Isaac is an uncle Tom. Again, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't respond. Honestly, I, I would, I, I try my best to live my life in, in, the, in the way that I see fit. And I don't care, you know, honestly, what other people have to say. I know what I believe and I know what I'm standing for and, and I'm going to continue to do it. That's a strong stance. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, God doesn't exist? I would say, look at my life. And, and I would say, read the book. <laughs> if someone says, God doesn't exist, I say, read, read why I stand. Absolutely. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, the only way to fix historical injustice is to create injustice today? 
I would say that doesn't make sense. I would I, I would say uh, 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 what's what's uh, Martin Luther King's quote uh, injustice in anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Yeah, uh, unless you're Ibram X. Kennedy, and then you then you think that that's the way that we're supposed to comport ourselves in modern society. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, I'm glad Jonathan Isaac got hurt? I wouldn't respond. I keep coming up with things that you're giving me the right answer. The right answer is to not respond, <laughs> but I get it. I should have wrote better questions. Come I, on, I, Kyle. You know, it's kind of a thought. You you know, the uh, Jesus said this all the time. He, he would say like, you know, when you do something like you have your reward in full already, it's like if, 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 if you're someone, you know, who would say something like that, the best thing that I could do is pray for you. And, you know, you have your reward already and, and, and go, you know, have a great life. This is a masterclass in how to bite your tongue, gentlemen. All right. Next few uh, here, and then we'll get you out of here. What would you say to someone that said all white people are oppressors? I would say you have I, to respond. You have I, to. I have to. I mean, I mean, I, I would just disagree. I would just disagree. I mean, it, it, you know, people are individuals and, and, you know, I've had great white friends in my life who has helped me tremendously. And Bora um, was a white man and he let me stay at his house all the time and uh, fed me and all these different things. And so, so no, it's, 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 it's idiotic. It's crazy. It's, it's the same thing as, you know, people who get upset about people making vast generalizations about black people. It's the exact same thing. You're exactly right. Okay, a couple more left. What would you say to someone that said, my kid wants to get better at basketball, but I don't know how to help him? Uh, you don't know how to help him? I mean, there's 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 a ton of camps. Um, I think I think just put a ball in his hand. I think the biggest thing is just being able to handle the ball, um, put him on a hoop and just let him play. I, we, we played sun, down, sun up to sundown all the time, every day when we were younger. We were outside just hooping. And so I, I, I would give that, that antidote. All right, last question. Here we go. What would you say to someone that said, God is in control? I would say right on, brother. Absolutely. Amen, amen, and amen. But hey, Jonathan, we have talked about a lot of stuff here, but we didn't give all the spoilers away from the book, so we're still going to have quite a few guys that can go and make sure they pick that up. But for now, that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Yeah, I just want to reaffirm that, y'all. Go get your book. You can head to Amazon. I know you said you're going to put it in, in all the links and stuff. I got one right here just to show you. Check it out. I appreciate it. And I just can't wait to hear all of the stories about, you know, what people think. Let's keep it number one on Amazon, guys. Jonathan Isaac, thank you so much for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you, man. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Jonathan Isaac. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got two links for you today. The first one is to the book, Why I Stand. You can pick it up today on Amazon. And I've also got a link to Jonathan's Instagram. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O. At undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.